Most of us are not cognitive of the overwhelmingly influence that Methodism had upon Baptist tradition. And one of the things that they brought to us was that fiery kind of singing that did not originate in the Baptist circle. But Methodism came with a great deal of fire. And that was one of the old spirituals you would hear sung in Methodist churches and it just took a hold in the Baptist tradition and we sort of revised it, revamped it, whatever you want to call it. But that's going way back, way back to that kind of when we had uh, not praise and worship. We didn't call it that then. Call it testimony of time. before the church and had testimony time. Everybody got up and sung a song and said a prayer and gave a testimony. And that went on and on and on for a while. But that lit a fire in worship and church was never the same. Let's give the music ministry a hand of praise this morning. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 5, the book of Acts chapter 5, and I'm going to read verses 12 through 16, book of Acts chapter 5 verses 12 through 16. I'm going to take a little bit different approach here at 11 than I did at 8 o'clock. I think I wore them out at an 8 o'clock service. I, I think I had them up here for about an hour. I ain't going to keep you that long, but uh, I'm going to take a different expositional approach. But I, I think when they left out at 8 o'clock, their tongues were hanging out. I, I sort of wore them out. Acts chapter 5, beginning at verse 12. And at the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. And also the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they we're all being healed. Word of the Lord, you may be seated. Normally on first Sunday of the year, I would share with you from more of an exegetical point, the theme of the year and the text that you might get clarity in terms of why the text and theme was chosen. This year, of course, as previously noted, our theme for the year is the year of the warrior. And I'll talk really more about that in the next sermon next week. But just to give you an idea of why that theme was selected, I was reading Isaiah 50 through 59. When you get to chapter 57, 8, and 9, God is overwhelmingly disappointed with Israel's condition because they allowed themselves to get into a condition that sort of disconnected them from God, which caused them to treat one another beneath their self-worth. So when you get to Isaiah chapter 58 and verse 1, I believe it is. It could be 59, but I think it's 58. God is taking on a different persona, but he at least, the writer says, Isaiah says to us, that God's hand is not so short that it can't save you, and that his ear is not so full that he can't hear you. And then in chapter 59, Isaiah, 
as he goes through a litany of defining for us God's disappointment of how Judah was treating one another like second-class citizens. In fact, they were oppressing each other to the point where in chapter 58, when they started to fast, God had to remind them what fasting really meant. And when they came to worship, how they took the Sabbath day for granted. And so in Isaiah 59 and verse 17, that's the theme scripture, it says that God took on the persona of a warrior to demonstrate to Israel, if you want to get your house right, this is what you got to do. You got to put on a warrior mentality and fight for what you desire to do. Merely because the enemy will not give in freely, will not do so. But you have to fight for what you so desire. And so I figured this way, this year we have one objective, that's it, one goal. That's all I have for Great Lausanne. Now I know people are used to sitting one, two, three, four, short term, five term, short term, long term. We got one goal and it's the same goal forever. We have got to maximize the art of evangelism. We got to learn how to reach out and bring people into the congregation. We got to learn how to share the message of the gospel that we might bring people to understand who are not Christians what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. We have got to evangelize. Now, how do I know that? How do I know that we need evangelism? We'll just look to your left and look to your right and notice all the blue you see in between you. That means that there's someone not sitting in that seat. And that means that if someone's not sitting in that seat, that means that's an open seat that we need to have someone to occupy. And we're only going to begin to really see growth if we reach out. where people are and that leads me to the book of Acts because if you read the book of Acts in chapter 5 it sits in a very peculiar setting and it's amazing where it's sitting at at least in the chronology of Luke because I think Luke had an objective in trying to convey to the future reader when they read this story of the acts of the apostles better defined the acts of the Holy Spirit, they will recognize that this phenomenon growth that comes out of Matthew 28 command, Mark 16, 15 command, to make disciples of all men, go to all nations, all people, baptizing him in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. When you start to really do that, that's evangelism. You absolutely cannot do it in the natural. You have to do it in the supernatural. That means that it takes the anointing of God's spirit to fill your life for you to be able to really go out and start sharing the message. Why? Because most of us are very fearful in sharing our message because one of two things. One, we don't know how which is predominantly the reason why, or two, we are so afraid that the recipient won't receive what we're trying to give, which is nothing more than a trick of the enemy. That's the creation of fear because certainly you don't know if that person will embrace what you're trying to provide, but that's not your job. Your job is merely to provide it and then the person being led by God's spirit will decide if they will receive it or not. And what I want us to do is understand the importance of how, as a congregation, we must be the greatest evangelist for our congregation. No one else is going to evangelize about you. In fact, statistically, it is known that the number one drawer to congregational growth is people telling people about their congregation. So sheep breed sheep because other sheep tell other sheep about how good their pen is when they come to celebrate. And so what we gotta do is see the significance of this in Acts chapter five, but here's, here's the glory of it. 
In Acts chapter 1, there's a provision of a pool received power from on high. Chapter 2, they get the power, but notice if you read Acts chapter 2, there is a multiplicity of people groups there, and God is so kind, so gracious, that everybody there heard the gospel in their own tongue. In hearing the gospel in their own tongue, they were able to leave away from that experience in Jerusalem, going back to their own ethnic or their own particular language, being able to share what they heard what preached in the gospel, they heard it, they were able to go back and tell their people about the good news. They became immediate evangelists. But the church had to be tested in terms of how valuable its strength and power really was. When we get to Acts chapter 3, there's a story about the man who's actually sitting at what the text describes the gate of beautiful, and he's sitting there repeatedly, but he's sitting into the entrance of the temple where they come to worship. As people come to worship because the man is lame, they step over him. Now they, not understanding that that man was placed there purposely every day, came there, either he came by himself or somebody brought him there, right in that same spot purposely, says God I believe, that they may end up recognizing how much power they really have in them to change that man's condition. But notice the man never came inside the church. They had to work with the man outside the church and what they were being set up to do was to leave the four corners of the temple and go out where the people were to evangelize. Not until Peter and John gets there that they come out and as they are passing on their way to do prayer, they witness this man and the man cries out for money because he's crying out from the condition that he's in and he thinks that he really needs money when he really doesn't need money. He needs some help to change his physical aspect and his spiritual being that he won't remain the same that he is. And Peter and John says, particularly Peter, silver and gold have I not, but such have I had to give unto thee in the name of Jesus. Therein lies your message of evangelism. You've got to share your story, but your story has to be inclusive of God's divine story. In other words, when you tell someone about God's goodness and about God's grace and about God's mercy and about God's saving power and about God's provision and God's protection don't just tell them about your story about where you are in your life but tell them how you got there and how God found you where you were and how God changed your life and how God renewed your life and how God renewed your mentality you got to put God in that story because it's only about Christ that you're evangelizing about not about you not about me but about the God who lives on the inside of us to tell somebody that he is good and he is merciful and he does look beyond your faults and see all your needs and then when we get to chapter 4 of Acts something else happens not only were they tested to find out how much power they really have because Peter and John reached out their hand where the man was and took the man by the head hand and the Bible says his feet became strengthened with his ankles and his ankles to his legs and his legs to his hip and he leaped up with great joy and then he made his entrance into the church and when he came in there people saw a changed mind to the point where they looked at him and said is that not he who used to sit at the gate of beautiful and if there was really an honest person that had stood up and said yeah that's him who we stepped over every single day to come into worship and to get our praise on not remember we can go as high as we want in God on Sunday but you got to come back down where the real people are on Monday and figure out a way to evangelize but that wasn't the real big test the real test comes in Acts chapter 4 where the religious officials become overwhelmingly disappointed and frightened and scared because these preachers who are turning the world upside down with the preaching of the gospel evangelizing threatening them they get arrested get put in jail 
get arrested to the point where they are threatened by the religious authorities and they are told, don't you ever talk in that name again. I just want to remind you, when you start witnessing for God, you start telling people about Jesus, you start telling people how God provides and makes a way for you, how God will save your soul, you will get an uprise of religious folk and angry satanic individuals who will get mad that you're talking about lifting up Jesus' name and leading someone to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Just get ready. When you start witnessing, that means that you're going to have a Attacks by the enemy. Don't worry about it. Do like Peter and John did. Stood their ground. And they stood their ground to the point where when they were brought before the council, they said unto them, listen, whether you be a man or not, you're not the one that we are afraid of. We're afraid of a God who saved our soul and who keeps us every single day. And as long as he gives us breath and strength, we're going to keep on telling the story and keep on preaching the word and keep on witnessing for his kingdom. And if you know how God has been so good to you, you will keep on telling the story and keep on witnessing of his goodness and keep on telling folk how good God is because you are an evangelist. But then watch what happens in Acts chapter 5. Because in the closing line, take your Bible, take your Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. We're going to walk through this text, then I'm going to give you benediction. In the closing lines of Acts chapter 4, it tells us that they were working in such unison that as they took their personal possessions, they were willing to sell them to make sure that everybody in the community had what they need. So watch Acts chapter 4 and verse 32. Watch what the text says. And the congregation of those who believe were of one heart and one soul. Let me just give you line 101. You cannot have a growing, vibrant congregation unless you first have a connected heart. I got to tell you this, uh, I mentioned it earlier at 8 o'clock and I'm only going to hint it here. Listen, because we want to evangelize, because we want growth and because we pray for growth and because we desire love to be in us, it really is insignificant until it actually happens within us. So you can talk a good game all you want, but the end result will tell you exactly what it is that you believe. So you see, they got growth because they had one mind and one heart, look closely at verse 32, until it tells us that as a result, no one of them were able to claim anything belonging unto them, but all things were common. The word common there is the very word that our fathers used in founding the state of Virginia is why they call it commonwealth. They call it that because they were intending, supposedly, that everyone had shared access to the resources that we have. And that's one of the missions of the church is to inform people that there is no inequity in the house of God. But when everybody comes, they come as the same in the body of Christ. And you got access to the same grace that I got access to, access to the same mercy, access to the same anointing, access to the same power. It's all the same according to the eyes of God. And there it is right there in verse 32. But unless we decide that we look at what it says, they decided that they were going to be one. We'll never see these pews filled until we decide we want them filled. You ain't got to say amen. I already know it's true. Look at, look at 33. Here's what God does. With great power, says verse 33, the apostles were witnessing, here's their story, the resurrection of Christ. See, that's, that's the great power that they have. That's their story. They are preaching how God is able to raise Christ from the dead. Now, my story is, not only did God raise Christ from the dead, but he raised me from the dead. And because he raised me from the dead and raised you from the dead, that's a part of my story. So when I tell people about how I came from point A to point B, I've got 
to interject, but let me tell you one other thing. I didn't do it all by myself, but I found myself on my knees one day, and somebody, my grandmama was praying for me, and the Holy Spirit brought me to a place where I learned about a risen Savior whom not only God raised from the dead, but he also raised me up from my dark space, from my poverty, from my difficulties, from my heartaches, and from my disappointments. He raised me up now so when I look back, I don't have to wonder how I got over. I know how I got over. I know who built the bridge over the troubled water. I know who walked with me through the darkness of the night. You got to have his story into your story in order to effectively evangelize. So the apostles witnessed the great resurrection and look what happened in return. Abundant grace was upon them all. That's Luke's way of telling us when y'all stop talking about yourself and start talking about God, God gives you grace. God gives you favor. God gives you progress. God gives you open doors. God gives you opportunities where people will pour into you and you never imagine. Lance Watson, the great preacher down in Richmond, because Lance Watson preached the gospel, but Lance also has developed a congregation who has a heart and an appetite for discipleship. You know what happened? Here's what God's favor will do. There was a church in the city where Lance is in Richmond that had closed up. It had dried up. And rather than to have it sold to commercial merchants, they ended up, watch this, giving the church to Lance Watson and his church, St. Paul Baptist Church. You know why? Because they say they said, we see that you are doing something with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you understand what I'm saying? When you tell the story about God, God will give you favor where people will give to you what you have not deserved and what you could not afford yourself. As a result, Lance Watson said that gave us an opportunity to establish another church on another side of town where we don't have to worry about people traveling across town to come to the main campus, but we were able to establish another church on the other side of town, all because God showed us favor and the congregation that had slowly declined gave us, not sold it to me, gave us their church building. I'm trying to tell you that this text says when you witness the resurrection of Christ and you preach Jesus, God will give you amazing grace and favor among the people. There it is right there. Watch this. And in verse 34 it says, there was not a needy person among them for all were homeowners. That's what it means. They own houses and land, but watch what they did. As a community, they would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sale and lay them at the feet of the apostle and they would distribute it each as a person is needed. Now actually, can't tell you now, but actually this is what really gave birth to Acts chapter 6. Because the apostles then were faced with the murmuring from the Greeks who said, how come we don't get the same treatment as the Jewish women and as the Jewish individuals? And as a result, the book of Acts says that they said, let us find us six good men, some good men who are filled with the spirit word and thus speaking the beginning of what we call deacons, diakonos ministry, which means they are persons to serve. Why? Because as apostles, we need to only give ourselves to prayer and the preaching of the word of God. So as a result, this is what happens. As a result, God so moved upon them that the apostle says, my our responsibility is not to distribute money to people. We'll give that to another level who needs that responsibility, but we need to be responsible for preaching God's word and for praying for the local church. I just wanted to say that so you recognize that's the reason why I don't sign no checks. I don't write no checks. I have nothing to do with the money in this church. All I get is my paycheck, and that's all it's going to be at the end of the day. Why? Because I don't believe that's where my signature is required. My responsibility is to preach the word of God to you and to pray for this congregation based on what I see in the book of Acts chapter 4 and 6. And as a result, 
God gave increase to the point, to the point where, notice what happens, that Barnabas, who is known as the son of encouragement, sells his property and again brings it to the feet of the apostles. Here's the key, that they might see how when there's a member in need and in that need, that need is met, watch this, so they don't have to go outside the church, but the church has the necessary resources to meet the needs of its members on the inside of the church. Now, here's another contemporary point that rides out this text. This is why the church has to stop thinking clearly tithes and offerings own and their mindset has to become entrepreneur creating wealth from multiple streams because as people's incomes dry up, you can't depend on that because let's, here, here, here's the honesty. Let's be honest. You ain't got to say amen, but here's the reality. When it comes between am I going to pay my mortgage or am I going to pay my tithes, you know exactly which one we're going to do. It ain't going to be the church. It's going to be Bank of America, Wells Fargo, whoever you got your mortgage, why? Because I need a roof over my head and I need to make sure that my children have covering for them as well, which is the reason why the church has to rethink how it gets its resources and start developing multiple streams. I wish I could tell you how the number of churches I know who own stock in companies that you would never dream of but the revenue streams and the dividends they get every month will blow your mind listen how do you think that a pastor can write a book and although he may make 200 million dollars that writing that book he gives a salary back to the church and the church doesn't have to worry about paying me anymore how do you think that church survived it ain't just because of tithes and offering they got some money coming from somewhere else you can rest assured on that and I'm just trying to tell you right here in the word of God is where they're trying to tell us think big have large expectancy but to get there you got to be a fighter because some people have conventional mind thinking and they're going to tell you I don't think that's what the church should be doing at the same time watch what they give probably much of nothing because they ain't going to be able to do a lot that they think they're going to be able to do why because you need resource watch this if we stop paying that light bill you're going to come up in here won't be no lights won't be no fan and the show won't be no heat and i don't think you're going to stay here long when it's four degrees outside and 20 below on the inside of here amen preach on pastor so we get to verse 37 and it says that they owned tracts of land and they sold it and gave it to the apostles' feet. Now, something happens in chapter 5. Something happens to the point where it alters the whole mentality of the church and causes them to rethink how they've been acting. Death. And look what happens. Ananias and Sapphira. A husband and wife team, part of the rich composition of the early church, did the same thing. Sold their property. Look at verse 1, chapter 5. But verse 2, clause A said, they kept back a piece. Now you might argue, wait a minute, ain't that their property and they have a right to keep back what they want to keep back and if they want to give it all, they can give it all. They don't. They don't have to. Well, I'm going to let you decide that. Watch this. They kept back a piece, and with his wife's knowledge, they brought a portion of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. If you go back and read verses 32 through 37, chapter 4, they didn't bring a portion. They brought their all and laid it at his feet. If you go back and read verses 37 to 30, I mean 32 to 37, chapter 4, they didn't bring a portion. They brought it all and laid it at their feet. If you go back to chapter 4 and read verse 32 to 37, they didn't bring a portion. They brought it all and laid it to their feet. If you go back to chapter 4 and read verse 32 to 37, they didn't bring a portion. They brought it all and laid it at his feet. You go back to chapter 4 and read verse 32 to 37. They didn't bring a portion. They brought it all and laid it at the apostles' feet. You go back to chapter 4 and read verse 32 through 37. They didn't bring a portion. They brought it all and laid it at the apostles' feet. You go back and read chapter 4, verse 32 to 37. They didn't bring a portion. 
They bought it all and laid it at their feet. You go back and read Malachi chapter 10. God says, I don't want you bringing me half of your stuff. I want all of your stuff. If you don't bring it all to me, don't bring none to me at all. That's Malachi chapter 3. I know we always quote, will a man rob God? Every chance they get, says Al Wood. But yet at the same time, God says, listen, if you rob me, I'll put holes in your pocket where every time you put a dollar in there, it'll find its way out of your pocket and you'll be looking for it. It'll be gone through some other avenue. But here's what he said. If you bring it all and prove me, I'll open up the windows of heaven and pour you out blessing that you won't have room enough to receive. Ananias and Sapphira had to do was bring it all and lay it at his feet and they would have gotten it all but they brought a portion and kept the rest to this selfishness will get you God's judgment if you ain't careful here it is right here in the text and as a result Peter says Ananias look at verse 3 and notice who he credits for Ananias thought process he didn't credit the church he didn't credit his wife he didn't credit his homeboy. He didn't credit his mama or his daddy. He says, look at verse 3, look closely. Two questions Ananias posed. Ananias, I mean, Peter poses. Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart? Now, I could sit there for a while and argue. We act the way we do because most of us got the devil in us. He's occupying a significant space on the inside of our heart. But I'm going to believe that we're growing in grace. See, y'all, just like I am, you're growing. You're not, that, you're not there yet. The perfect ones, I'll leave you out there. I'll let y'all stay where you are. But those of us who are trying to grow in the Lord, we recognize that the devil can be busy, and we do yield to him sometimes. See, that's what this text tells me. This text tells me that Ananias and Sapphira, although followers in the church, had the nerve to yield sometime to say, and we do that. We do that. When we get to acting crazy and mistreating one another, we are yielding to the influence of Satan. I'm not coming to church because he or she made me mad and I, I, I need a break. We're yielding to Satan. I'm not coming back to the choir because of her or him. We're yielding to Satan. I am not going to go to that meeting because I know how they're going to act. And if I start acting, we're going to act a fool. You are yielding to Satan. There it is, right there. Look, don't look, look right there in verse 3. Peter's question is, Ananias, why did you let the devil do this to you? And if that's not good enough, look what he says. You let him not only fill your heart, but he filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. I told him this morning, you got to stop lying to yourself and lying to God. But he says, why are you allowing him to make you lie to the Holy Spirit? You know what he means there? When we come in and when we put on that facade, and pretend to love. See, if you do an, etymolo an etymological study right here, particularly when he talks about phrase, fill your heart, and then the single word to lie, it's tied to the word hypocrite. It means that we're going to put on a mask and pretend that we got it all together. Now, you know you ain't got it together. You know you struggling just like I'm struggling. We're all struggling trying to live out this life of holiness. You know that we're trying to work this thing out. And when we make a mistake, stop trying to act like you want to hide it. The problem is if you try to hide it, God has set up a situation. And that cover will come back. And you know what happens when you butt naked and somebody pull open the cover. <gasps> there it is right there in the text. Look what he says. Why have you lied to the Holy Spirit to keep back some of the price of the land? 
And if that's not it, look at verse 4. While it remained unsold, did it not remain in your own possession? And after your soul, it was not under your control. Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? Some of us think of ways not to grow. Some of us are determined to be a hindrance, but we ain't going to never admit it. Because you're lying to yourself and you're lying to God. I'm not going to admit that I'm a hindrance. And if I'm a hindrance, please forgive me. I'll step out of the way. Then step out of the way. What you waiting on? We waiting for you to step out of the way. But we'd rather be a hindrance. Look at the text. We would rather lie to ourselves because the enemy fills our heart. And there's a danger in selfishness. Watch the text. And look what happens. Verse 5. And he heard these words. And here is what I raised the question this morning. What if God dealt with us in our failure to evangelize like he dealt with Ananias and Sapphira? You don't feel that. Look at verse 5. As he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last word. Now, how do I know this is an impact moment in the church? Look at the next line. And fear came over the entire church. Everybody who witnessed that moment stood up and realized God ain't nothing to play with. It's an alarm to tell us that every time we witness a funeral, every time we witness that someone came home, every time we hear that somebody has gone home, it's an alarm to tell us, be about the business that God has called you to do. That's why I call this sermon, we got a lot of work to do. We got some work to do. Because if you have an assignment, every time somebody leaves and goes to glory, it reminds me that God is getting closer to my number. And do I really want to leave my work undone? Instead, I want to be able to sing, may the work I've done speak for me. When I've gone the last mile of the way and there's nothing else to say, May the work I've done speak for me. But I can't do that unless I do some work. And evangelism is hard work. Do you know how hard it is to share the message with somebody who don't want to hear what you got to say? Do you know how hard it is to get yourself up with the encouragement to be able to share tidbits of leading someone to a relationship with Christ? That's tough work. You know how hard it is to be able to sit with people that you know don't want anything to do with God and yet you see in their life evidence that they need the presence of God there. But it's hard work. And by it being hard work, you are called to do that work. Think about what happens if God says, because you didn't do Matthew 28, 19, and 20, and because you didn't do Mark 16, 15, I'm going to let you breathe your last breath and let him eulogize you. And just in case you sit next to someone and you're saying in your spirit, I'm so glad that's not me because that's not a message for me. Look close at verse 7. It says, uh, now three hours had elapsed. And his wife came in with the same mentality. Look what it says. No, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, we sure did. What I tell you about lying to yourself and then lying to God. We sold it. We sold it for such and such price. And look what Peter says. Verse 9. Then Peter said, why is it that you've agreed together? Which means that her and her husband thought this plan out earlier. Now you might say, Pastor, what in the world does this have to do with evangelism? Watch this. Peter says, why have y'all agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and you next. Ain't that what he said? Look at verse 10. And she fell immediately to her feet, breathed her last breath, and what did the young men do? Carry her on out. 
just like they carried out her husband three hours earlier and buried her hopefully right beside him. And maybe somebody said, now y'all work that plan together since y'all wanted to be together so bad. But look what verse 11 says. Fear fell on all the church. Look at that. Fell on all the church and upon everybody who heard it. Not just inside the church, but even outside the church. What is God doing? Stirring up the importance of staying focused on evangelism. See, some people think that the church should be the leader in social justice. Some people think that the church should be the leader in cultural change. Some people think that the church should be the leader in whatever righteous change or moral change that society experiences, and they may be right. But the church, nothing ever trumps in the church her ultimate purpose and mission as she's connected to Jesus. For Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. And when we stop trying to find lost people, and this is what happens to most churches, we stop reaching out to those who are lost and we're taking in more people who what we call transfer. That just means they bring one hell from where they came to to where we are and it just completes the hell. That, that's all it really means. And we just mesh it all together. Whereas we go out and find those who are lost, we bring them in and make disciples of them. That way the church never grows stale because her mission and purpose is always at the forefront to save lost souls for the kingdom. When we stop doing that and all of our energy is focused internally, we don't get God's favor. Because every day that means we're walking past the lost and they never get a chance to hear the good news from us. Now you might say, I can't carry that burden, man. I can't save the whole world. God never asked you to save the whole world. Just those whom you come in contact with. Now watch this. If that fear came upon the church, and it did, look at verse 12. Because there's something happens in terms of transitioning the characteristic of the church where it moved from being a people who just merely grow to becoming a people who now understand the meaning of their growth. Look what it says. Look at verse 12. Verse 12 depicts the first characteristic. And the first characteristic is as a result of the death of Ananias and Sapphira. And that's the reason why every time we have a funeral in this church, it should wake us up. And remind us that as we lose one, we need to replace one. Because if you don't do it voluntarily, God will help you do it involuntarily. And we do that by eulogizing us. So at some point in time, I'm going to be rolled out of, if it's not here, some other church. Somebody, I hope somebody say something good about a brother at the end of his journey. I'm trying to outlive all my enemies so I know they'll have something to say about me when I'm finally gone. And I'm trying to stay in good grace with some of my preacher's friends so when I'm gone, they'll have something good to say about me. Because at some point in time, we're going to leave here. You're getting about this place. You're not going to stay here forever. Watch this. And somebody else going to stand at this desk. And someone else going to sit where you're sitting in the pew. And another congregation is going to form. It may not be called Great Little Zion. It may be called something else. But somebody else is going to form because the work of God goes on whether you volunteer to participate or you involuntary. It doesn't matter. It's going to move on. So that frightened this church. And what happened to them? They got a revelation. See, look at verse 12. They got a revelation. Because what happened was God started using the apostles. And then what it said? That miracles. And signs and wonders began to happen at the hands of the apostles. Why? Because that was needed in the early church. They had to see 
God do some great things. And he used his apostles to do so. You may not see that now in the same form of what you saw then, but what you will see now is the manifestation of God's word coming to pass. Watch this. How many of you know that Isaiah 40, 31 is true? They that wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings of the eagles, and they shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not. So how do you know that's true? Because now I've walked through. Isaiah 40. How many of you know Psalm 23 is right? Because you walk through. How many of you know that Psalm 27 and Psalm 34 and Psalm 35 is correct? How many of you know that it will actually do what it says? Because you've had to walk through it. So the sign and wonder is not somebody else, it's me. God has worked signs and wonders in my life. Okay, let me bring a little closer to home. How many of y'all been sick, knocked out, dead on your bed of affliction, didn't know if you're going to get back up, and now you are healthy, back on the track? Why? Because God shows you that by his stripes, you saw the reality of Isaiah 53. How many of you know that you're saved? How did you see that? Because you know that he was wounded for your transgressions and bruised for your iniquities. And the chastisement of his feet was upon him and by his stripes you've been. I know I'm saved. God, I'm out here, LaShawn, pacing. I know I've been changed. Angels in heaven done sign my name. Look what the text says, verse, verse 12. Revelation came about. They saw the signs and wonders. Look taking place among the people. And look at that. We're back at that one phrase. They were all on one accord. The word Solomon's portico. You know what that means? They were on one accord in the place where they prayed and worshiped. God Almighty. That's God's way of trying to tell us, you can't come into my house and be of intimate fellowship if you're not on one accord. The old can't tell the young that we don't need your help. You wait until your turn. You can't tell them that. And the young can't tell the old. You too old, step aside. You can't tell them that. But God says, I made you old and I made you young. And both of you have contribution to this lifestyle of the community. Andy Stanley. Andy Stanley taught me one good principle. That is, when he started his church in Georgia, he had no one over 30 years old in his leadership. But Andy realized as time went on that I need some gray hairs among these young folk. I need some folk who have been through the fire, who have been tried, who have been proven. I need some experience. You know what happened? Andy said all the years he spent in his father's church, he saw what happens when older people think that they are indivincible. And that made him feel like when he started his church, he don't want anybody older than 30 in his leadership, only to find out. But 30-year-olds, they rarely know what it means to cry in the midnight hour. They rarely know what it means to suffer through the valley of the shadow of death. They don't know what it means to toil through the midnight hour. They, they got too much advantage now, too many, too many good parts of living. They, they, they don't know what it means to come up the hard way. Can I, can I go back a little bit? I'm almost done. Can I go back a little bit? Let me take you back. They don't know what it means to, to get to church early so you can put wood in the pot belly stove and make sure it's warm enough for the congregation to get there. They don't know what it means to come there and get the communion table prepared and got to bring the windows up and put the cover on top of the communion so the flies won't disturb the communion elements. They don't know what it means to get to church three, four hours early to fry chicken and get things ready for the church anniversary. They have no clue. They cater everything now. And, and they don't have to worry about windows being up and flies all through the the sanctuary they don't have any idea what it means to walk to church for five or ten miles and then to walk back from church after you've been there for three four so they have no clue I know y'all I know y'all suburban y'all don't know about that but so he realized that you need both crowds 
Watch this. And as God gave revelation, both crowds realized that God was working among us. So young people realize we need that wisdom of what to do. And older people realize we need that youth of how to get it done. But we also need that creativity and that new innovation, that new innovation that they have. You need young people because one day, those of us who are 55 and beyond, we're going to get up out of here. Whether it's retirement, whether we decide to go someplace else, whether it's death, somebody young got to take the reins. This church has remained alive for 126 years because we understood transition. This is the first time I don't think we understand it. We don't understand it. We pushing young people away. We are pushing them away. Every time they come up with a new idea, we got some reason to resist change. All I can tell you is this millennial is a different breed. You can push them if you want to, but they won't let you push them long or far. They'll just tiptoe right in someplace else where somebody will embrace them and let them. All they want to do is work. That's all they want to do. All they want to do is work. And listen, I don't expect, here's my case in point. I don't expect for these young people to sing at the cross like I sung it. I just don't. But I expect for them to revamp it put their own little flair in it, put a little Roger Zap in that thing and make it feel like it ought to feel so that they can attract other young people like they are. I'm a caught in between cycle preacher. So the preachers that I grew up with, the predominant of those who trained me are all deceased now. My favorite preacher certainly died back in 06, most of the style, my preaching style is not the traditional black Baptist preaching style. The preachers that I mimic are all deceased now. That's that rhetorical, academian kind of approach. Nowadays, these young guys got energy. <laughs> Just jumping all over the pulpit and doing cartwheels and coming <laughs> down. I don't have that. And I realized, ain't, listen, I tried it. I tried it. Ain't no need to me trying it. When I go home, I am a wreck. Don't do it no more. Stick in your lane. Do what you do. But let others do what they do to enhance where you are. I realize everybody don't care much for my preaching style. I don't hoop. I don't moan. I just can't do I tried it. I can't do it. And I admit I can't do it. But watch this. I'm willing to bring in people who can because I love a good hoop myself. And I'm willing to watch how God used people in different ways. So they got a revelation that something different is happening in their church as a result of death. Watch this. Not only that, patient changed. See, look at verse 13. Not only did they get a revelation in verse 12, but look at their reputation in verse 13. Verse 13 tells us how powerful God worked in them, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. So there were those who stayed at a distance, but they realized we've got to respect them because they're doing God ministry. They're evangelizing. Not just their reputation, but look at the text. As a result of that, they were reproducing. Look at verse 13, 14, and 15. 13 was their reputation. 14 and 15, they're reproducing. Look what the text says. More believers in the Lord were constantly being added unto them. Men, uh, women and men, constantly. Something's happening where they are constantly growing. Which says to me that they were doing the things that were needed to be done to grow their congregation. 
Then my last point, not only were they reproducing, but they were restoring people's lives. See, verse 15 says that they were reproducing to the point where they were not only growing, but 15 and 16 says they were changing people's lives to the point where those who were sick were being brought to them on carts in the street. But then verse 16 says that they were making an effect on the people around them because people in localized vicinities were bringing people to them as well who were afflicted and sick and they were being healed. This story says to us, we not only got much work to do, but if we don't do it, we failed God. They likewise created an atmosphere where that church grew. I'm gonna leave you with this challenge. We may want growth, but until we change our attitude about how we have church, you ain't gonna get no growth. If you have a visitor come to your congregation, remember people pass other churches to come to your church. If we don't create an atmosphere where loving and caring, the number one ingredient for a growing congregation statistically is being relational. And if people don't feel like you want to have a relationship with them, they're not coming back. And they know how to look through our phoniness. They know it when we're not genuine. So I'm going to spend 100% of my time this year talking about evangelism. I can hear somebody saying that. Well, I guess I won't be here long because I ain't talking about no evangelism. Here's, here's the thing. Here's the thing. If we don't grow our church, none of us might not be here long. So Jesus says to the Pharisees on one occasion who were trying to major in the minor, he says, these things you ought to have done, you left them undone. If I don't tell you about evangelism, that's an undone assignment that I have. And I got to tell you, part of our responsibility is not just to come here and get fed on Sunday morning. It's to come here and receive the word and go back out and share it come Monday. So that we can bring people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Lord, let the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable in your sight. For indeed, you are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. All over the building. There may be somebody here who needs to know Jesus. This is the day that God has given you to hear the word in reference to eternal life. I want you to receive this invitation as a chance for you to change your life going forward from this day. The first Sunday of the new year may be a chance for you to walk into your newness. You may already be a believer and you are looking for a church home. I pray that this is the place that God would lead you and we would love to be your church family. As the choir comes and sings for us, I want to give you a chance to think in terms of what the Holy Spirit will do with you and through you as we make preparations for benediction as the choir blesses us this morning. Would there be one today?
While you're standing, if you would, greet somebody next to you. Give them a big old hug and tell them God loves you and so do I.